good to be back with you. Um, for those of you who've been new the last couple of weeks, I met a couple of different folks that have been here two weeks in a row. And uh, actually, last Sunday morning, I'd just gotten back from vacation, and I was just kind of exit greeting folks. And uh, it was kind of interesting because all of a sudden, uh, I realized, hey, these folks don't have a clue who they are, who I am. Uh, not that I'm anybody, but, you know, they're going like, okay, I've been here for two weeks. I've heard two different people speak, and uh, you're not it. And so, uh, so I am Bill White. I'm the lead pastor at Great Oaks. And uh, you can pull up the house lights even more up here uh, if you want to. There you go. Yeah, I can see you now. Um, and so we've, we've gotten back. And so we're into the New Testament. Um, I was trying to think today about some, some history of things. And um, I remember back when I was in college, I went to a school in Tennessee called Carson Newman College. It was a small liberal arts college there in a small town called Jefferson City. Uh, the, city, the town of Jefferson City is maybe 2,000 people, maybe the size of Metamora, Germantown Hill, something like that. Uh, has a few little restaurants and whatever, but the college itself had about 2,000 students, so we were as big as the town was. And so I'll never forget, though, that many times my wife and I, actually, we were not married then, but uh, as we were dating uh, during the college years, we would go uh, down the street, walk down the street a, few, a couple of blocks down to this little restaurant called Bell's. And Bell's was one of those little local restaurants that serves that kind of food, probably you know, out of a box somewhere, but we thought it was incredible. You know, I remember us going there. I can still remember this. I, I couldn't believe I remember this all those years ago. Going there for their Friday night shrimp special. It was like 20 little shrimp, you know, probably the processed ones out of a box, you know, with some french fries. We thought it was the greatest thing in the world. That was our big date night thing, you know. And um, we'd go there. And, but on our way there, there was a corner there just before we got to Bell's where there, there happened to be on a regular basis this guy up there. And this guy would be ranting and raving, and he had signs, Turner, burn, repent, you know, this whole thing. He was a street preacher. You ever encountered a street preacher before? Somebody who just likes to stand on the corners and yell and scream. And this guy was pretty scruffy. You know, he was, uh, hadn't looked like he'd had a bath in a while. Uh, he had some issues going on. Uh, yesterday morning, I was sharing in our men's small group. I meet with a group of guys here on Saturday mornings at 6.30, and uh, we were sharing about that. And some guys that went to ISU said there used to be a famous street preacher that would show up on the quad at ISU. Anybody go to ISU and saw the famous street preacher there? He'd be out there yelling and screaming. And, and he said in the old days before there was air conditioning in some of the dorms or in some of the classrooms, they have the windows open. And he was so loud that he would distract classes. Uh, that's how loud he was, this kind of street crazy street preacher guy that was there for many, many years. Well, Jesus was introduced in a sense by a street preacher. He was a, a guy who uh, was scruffy, a guy who was different, a guy who would not be the person if you were going to do a, you know, a PR campaign to, uh, uh, to, to raise the level of expectation for Jesus coming. He would probably not be the guy that you would think about. But uh, Jesus is introduced this way. We come to the place in, in, in the story that we've been in now for several months. Uh, we've come to the New Testament. And last week, Chris uh, Genders, our youth pastor, a student ministries pastor, he did a great job of introducing you and building a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, I, when I saw on Facebook what he was going to do, I was just a little going like, you're an idiot, Chris. Uh, going like, you're going to do all of that in 30 minutes? Uh, did it in 35 minutes, okay. And uh, the thing was, he uh, kind of built this bridge of saying, and, and if you missed the point last week, I hope you didn't miss the point, but the point was this, is that Jesus is not just something new. He's been there from the beginning. He was part of the Godhead, the, the Trinity, from the very beginning. In creation, Jesus was there. But we're now in the place in the New Testament where we actually see God in the flesh, Jesus. 
And because even though he was there all the time and he was part of, of, of all things from all time, now he comes and he walks and he lives among us. And so the 33 years that he lived upon this earth are probably the, the 33 years, especially the three years of his ministry, are the three probably most uh, instructional years that we can possibly have because it helps us to understand God in a way we've never understood God before because now he is walking among us. He's Jesus in the flesh. And, 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 and as Chris shared last week, he said, you know, it's kind of like he, he kept using the phrase, I think was a great phrase, you know, like we're like ants uh, trying to understand a person, you know, and we're, but we're like ants uh, in comparison to God trying to understand God. But what if an ant or, or, or a person decided to come down and become an ant and walk among ants? Do you think you would understand them a little bit better? Probably so. And so, in a sense, that's what we're at, where we're at in the Bible now. We're in that place where Jesus comes, God comes, and walks among us, and he teaches us uh, who he is and what he's come for. But it's interesting. Uh, some of the, if you read the story this week, you read portions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. Particularly, we're going to focus on just part of that today, particularly Matthew chapter 11, but we're going to start back in Matthew chapter 3 because... John came to introduce Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. This is he who has spoken of, uh, he, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then it gives a description of John. It says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. I don't know what that looks like. Um, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food, he, he, he was, a, he was, a, he was a, a very eclectic food eater. His food was locust and wild honey. I hope he put the wild honey um, on the locust to make them a little more edible. I don't know if he did that or not. And it says people, but he was obviously somebody that drew a crowd because it says people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. So he wasn't this crazy street preacher that repelled us. He was somebody that drew people to him. And it says as they went out there, they confessed their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So we see, we see Jesus being introduced, the Son of God being introduced by this wild-haired, crazy guy wearing camel's hair and a belt, eating locusts and wild honey, who preaches out in the desert, and he's kind of like, he's not exactly, I guess, like the crazy street preachers that I've encountered before, because he was attractional enough that people would come and want to be around him. They wanted to hear his message. He was able, in a real sense, to draw a crowd and people wanted to hear him and they were convicted of, of the need to, to repent and to be baptized by him as well. So he was a very uh, effective street preacher uh, in, in, in the history of street preachers. And, and so he does that. Now, the Bible starts that, but then later on, later on, uh, we find out that what happens to John is that John is placed in prison. And he's placed in prison because of one reason, because he speaks out against Herod Antipas, who is, the, is the, 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 the ruler of that day. And he speaks about him because he does something wrong. He marries his brother's wife, amongst other things that are wrong that he does. And as John speaks out against that, what happens is John is thrown into prison. And so a few chapters later, after chapter 3, we read in chapter 11, uh, uh, this is where we're going to camp out today. We're going to focus on this passage in chapter 11. John asks an interesting question. While he's in prison, he asks this question. It says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, about all the stuff that had happened since the last time he had met Jesus or saw Jesus, he said he sent his disciples to ask him, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? 
Are you the one, is the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, if it had been anybody else in that culture asking that question, it would not be a surprising question. The reason for that is, is that in that culture, when they knew that the Messiah was coming, their idea of a Messiah was to be a political Messiah. Someone, and politics in, in that sense was, was dealt with power and position. It would be somebody who would come, their idea of the Messiah would be somebody who would come who would fix stuff, who would, who would fix all the problems they had, who would make everything right, you know, like our government does, right? We're not even going there. Um, but the issue is, you know, it would not be, but that was their idea of the Messiah. They all believed that the Messiah was coming in that Jewish culture, but the Messiah was going to be this political figure who came as a king and fixed everything and made everything right. But it's surprising that John asked this because of his history with Jesus. Because if, if, if you, let me share with you, if you don't know the history of John and Jesus, you go back and look in Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, it says that even before he was born, John actually recognized Jesus. Now, how's that work? It says this in Luke chapter 1. At the time that Mary got ready, Mary was who? Jesus' mother. Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, and she was pregnant with Jesus. It says, when she entered Zacchaeus, uh, Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, who was Elizabeth? John's mother, okay, they were cousins, okay, greeted Elizabeth. He said, this is what happened. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in, in Elizabeth's womb, which was John, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, prenatally, I don't know how this works. I'm an aunt trying to figure out God, but uh, some, some, some way here, you know, John's in, the, John's in the womb and Jesus is in the womb and they come into the same room and John, some way, the baby leaped in the womb recognizing he was in the presence of the Son of God. Okay, that's the first instance we see. So we have that, that history with John and Jesus. Another time it says in John chapter 1, it says when John had really had connected with Jesus first, he says the next day in verse 29 of chapter 1, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, and this whole crowd of people, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is not, he's not met Jesus yet, but he's not confused about who Jesus is. He doesn't look across the room and says, everybody looks alike to me. I mean, you know, there's the blonde, blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus. The one non-Jew amongst all the Jews that all of that... Yeah, I don't get it, do you? Uh, the, the issue is, no, that's not what Jesus was at all. He recognized in this whole group of, of Jewish people this one who was, who was God. John recognizes him for some way. I don't know how he did it once again, but he does in this crowd. It's like going into a crowd and you don't know a person, but you, you know their name, you know about them, and all of a sudden you're going like, that is that person. And some way you know. And that's what John did in this passage. And then in Matthew chapter 3, in the baptism of Jesus, it says in chapter 3, verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him by saying, I need to be baptized by you. And, do you, and, do you, and why do you come to me? I mean, I mean that was an obvious thing. You know, who in the world would want to baptize Jesus? I wouldn't. You know, I want him to baptize me. And that's what John's saying. But then Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill the, all righteousness. Then John consented. 
And so as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. I mean, what a cool effect. Wouldn't that be cool to see a Spirit of God coming down like a dove and, and lighting upon Jesus? And it says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son in whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. See, John had all of this history with Jesus. This wasn't an unknown quantity. In the womb, he knew who Jesus was. He, saw, he picked him out of a crowd. This is the Messiah, the Son of God, who will save the sins of the world. He baptized him. He heard the voice of God say, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And all of these things happened before chapter 11. And then we get to chapter 11, and then he asked this this question, when John was in prison, he heard about the deeds of the Messiah, and he asked him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Do you understand why it's so surprising that John would ask that question with his history with Jesus? Jesus, are you really who you say you are? See, it's a fairly straightforward answer when you think of the context, though. Because when John heard from prison what Jesus was doing, he asked that question, and Jesus responds. And this is what his response is. Jesus' response is this. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And John would have known all of these things because he had heard about this and this, this prophecy in Isaiah that was, that was told that this was going to happen. And he knew that this was happening because he knew of the history of Jesus. All these things were happening. And so Jesus says, reminds him of that. He says, says that. But then he adds one aberration, one, one, one sentence that seems out of place with everything else. In verse 6 he says this to John. Yeah, John, I'm doing all these things, but, this, but then he says this. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And if you read that, it seems like, what is he talking about? What's Jesus talking about? I mean, how many people do you know that have fallen away from God because they saw a miracle? God, if I see one more miracle, I'm going to become an atheist. I mean, do people do that? If I see one more person... Uh, you know, healed from their blindness or, or they could be able to walk or raise from the dead. You know, that's going to push me away from the faith. That's not what he's saying at all here. What does Jesus say? Why does Jesus say this? Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And remember John's in prison. He says this to John. John, you're right. Yeah, I am the one who was doing all these things. I'm making the blind see. I'm making the lame walk. I'm healing lepers. And John, I am the one who's going to leave you in prison and allow you to die for my sake. And if we read that and don't understand the God of Scripture and the Jesus of Scripture, we will be confused. Because you see people in that culture and people in our culture What we do is we've, we've taken the Jesus of Scripture and we've kind of civilized and domesticated and made this politically correct view of Jesus. 
And this view of Jesus looks like this. This civilized, domesticated view of Jesus is like this. Jesus is always, the purpose of Jesus is Jesus always comes through for us. Jesus is there to protect us. Jesus, his optimal goal is our safety and our comfort and our, our convenience. And it's all wrapped up in a, in, in a theological expression that you probably have heard and may have even have said. And this is that expression. The expression is this. The safest place to be is where? In the center of the will of God. Even don't know it's on the screen. So, you know, the safest place to be. We, we wrap up that idea of, of God in, 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 that, in that expression. Now, isn't that a beautiful expression? Isn't that a comforting expression? Isn't that so beautiful and comforting? Isn't it so unbiblical? Where did we get that from? I mean, with John in prison, knowing that Jesus says to him, John, I'm going to heal all these other people, John. And yes, you did show the way for people, but John, I'm going to leave you in prison to die and be beheaded for me. Do you think John at that point was saying the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God? And I begin to think about that in light of all of Scripture. And I was asking myself the question. If that's true, if the statement is true, the safest place to be in the light, the center of the will of God, then it would be carried out in all of Scripture. And, and I was thinking about who are the people in Scripture, right? who, particularly one person who would just seem to, seem to be more in the center of the will of God than anybody else. And, and my, my vote was for the Apostle Paul, okay, besides Jesus, the Apostle Paul. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. The guy had to be every once in a while close to the center of the will of God, right? Would you agree with me with that? The Apostle Paul. So if anybody comes close to the center of the will of God, at least Paul did it a few times. And so what does Paul say about what it means to be in the center of the will of God? This is what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says this, and this is not going to be on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen. It says, are, there, are they servants of Christ? I am. And he's talking about himself. I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked more harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night at sea, a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. And the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. Where do we get that? Where do we get that? We, I'll tell you where we've gotten that from, this idea. We have taken the script, the, the Jesus, the God of Scripture, and we have domesticated and civilized and made him politically correct. And we've created religion using the name of Jesus Christ. And we've taught people that God's optimal desire is for, you to, is for, for you is to live your life in an isolated, insulated bubble where you risk nothing, sacrifice nothing, lose nothing, and worry about nothing. See, the God of Scripture says this. Jesus' death wasn't simply to free us from dying, but to free us from the fear of dying. 
See, Jesus came to liberate us so that we would die up front and then live. Jesus wants us to go places that only people who have died to self and to fear can go. Jesus doesn't call call us to live a risk-free life. He calls us to live a full life that may have risk and may have involved suffering and may involve, even for some people, death. All for His sake. But I wonder how many of us have become embittered with God and confused about our faith because what happens is, is that God doesn't, when God doesn't come through the way we think He should, because we've adopted this view of this politically correct God who's always there to help us through every little thing and not stub our toe. See, for many of I wonder, maybe the problem is as we keep inviting people to step into the comfort and security of Jesus Christ, we kept telling people that Jesus is going to bless you and bless you and bless you, and he wants to give you more and more and more, and it appeals to our materialistic, self-centered selves. And while people may be attracted to that, it's simply not the true thing that we see in Scripture. See, maybe what we need to do is step back and say, really, it is not about you. Have you ever read The Purpose Driven Life? Number one selling book is for the Bible of all time. You remember what the first few words of that book is? It's not about you. Rick Warren couldn't have, not have been more correct scripturally and biblically. It's not about you. Really, it's, see, we need to step back and say Jesus Christ is worth living for and he wants you to throw yourself at his feet even if it means going through some hardships in life. Because it is more fulfilling, more powerful... To follow Jesus than to have everything else in the world without him. And have we forgotten that? Have we become so domesticated, so civilized, so politically correct in our view of Jesus that we lose sight of who he is and why he came? I can tell you this, in ministry to people over 30 plus years of ministry now, you know, so many times people have come to me with problems and, and difficulties and I prayed for them and prayed for them and prayed for them and so often it would be so easy to say to them, you know, everything is going to be fine. Everything is going to be alright. And, and in the end, I believe, I trust in Jesus that everything will be fine eternally. But I just know for a fact that just because you follow Jesus does not mean that everything is going to be safe or everything is going to be risk-free or everything is going to be always just all right. You know, I love to say as my kids were growing up, you know, just stay in the will of God and nothing will happen to you. You'll be safe. But it's just not true. We live in a risky world, folks. Well, there's lots of people who do evil things. And I can't say for a fact it's because you stay in the center of the will of God, it's going to be, you're always going to be safe. So this is what I tell people now. And I've been doing it for years and years and years. When you go through tough times, you cannot choose when you will die or how you will die. But you do have the power to choose how you will live. And that's the important choice. And that's the only choice that counts. I wonder how many of us are at that point of decision 
where John the Baptist found himself. Where God says to John, John, I'm going to leave you in prison because you have risked everything for me and this is going to be for my glory. How many of us are there where we say, God, are you, God says, are you willing to risk everything on my behalf rather than living a safe life? Are you willing to live a life worth living? That's the question. That's the Jesus of Scripture. Last Friday, a week ago, I got back from Florida. Nice time. 84 degrees when I left. A little warmer than here. So it was a great time. But I want to share with you this morning the most significant thing that happened on vacation. Uh, the first, first of all, the day I left... Um, the day I left, I got off the plane, and the first thing that happened was I, got a, I had a phone call from Chris and saying that one of our dear members had died. And we talked about it, and, you know, and, 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 and I back and forth with staff and calling and talking to the family and doing stuff. And, and I appreciate so much our staff, having a staff here that can handle all the stuff and a leadership team, even our chairman who kind of reprimanded me for even thinking about coming back and... and uh, doing something. He said, you need a vacation. You need to take time. This is your time away with you and your wife and God. And he was right. I needed it. And it became more evident as the vacation went along because the last day that we were there on a Thursday, the last day we were there on a Thursday, God spoke to me in a way that he's not spoken to me in a long time. We got the opportunity to go down to an area called Eloise, which is a community on the southwest side of Winter Haven, Florida. My in-laws, my, my father-in-law is a retired pastor, and they volunteer in a um, community center every Thursday afternoon. And he asked us, I know you're on vacation, but would you like to go down and volunteer with us? And I said, sure. And so Vicky and I went down there, and it's this little community called Eloise that's a community mostly of Hispanic folks, incredibly poor, incredibly, uh, so many of them have been migrant workers picking the oranges and the, and the grapefruits in that area, and, and that's kind of the people they were. They'd set up this, and, and it was this little struggling Hispanic church down there that in another building that, it, with the help of a lot of other, building, uh, other churches around, had set up this community center. And, and three days, or two or three days a week in the evenings, they have a free clinic there. And doctors come in and they set up this really, have this really nice waiting room and these, and these beautiful, beautiful, uh, uh, really nice examination rooms. And on the front they have a place that they're remodeling and rebuilding and they have a bunch of people that coming in. We're helping rebuild it right now. There's going to be a place where people can come and they can um, uh, go through GED classes and they can um, uh, learn parenting skills and they can learn how to, you know, just whatever. And they need, need to, they're going to help them in that way. But every other thir- every Thursday, every other Thursday, something like that, uh, they have a food giveaway, and they have a lot of businesses in the area that they go out, and these people go out from this group, and they they collect food, and then, and whatever they get, they put it in bags, and they try to get as many bags of food and as equally processed as possible, and so we had like eighty bags of food, and and we're going like this was like in the, you know like from twelve to one we were putting the food together, and then they start the people start coming. And when they come, they come through a table there. And as they come to the table, they, they, they kind of check them in. They kind of want to know, you know, can, is there anything we can help you with that you would like to come back to the medical clinic on? This is when it is, so forth and so on. And then they ask them, to, you know, they have a whole table, and it's mostly Spanish um, Bibles and other resources. But they also ask them, would you like to pray with a pastor? And so 
My father-in-law is one of those who they pray with. I got to pray with some of the people there as well. But I met the most remarkable, just godly pastor I've ever met. His name is Juan Madero. Juan Madero grew up in Puerto Rico. He came to Chicago when he was 18 years old. When he was 22 years old, he started a church in Chicago. And for the next 12 years of his life, he ministered there in Chicago in some suburb there. I don't know exactly where he told me. I didn't know where it was. And then he decided he'd gotten married during that time. And his wife, his wife's family was from Winter Haven, Florida. And so they said, why don't you come down here and start a... There's so many Hispanic people in this area. You need to start a church down here. And so he went down to Winter Haven, which is a really nice, mostly white-collar community, okay, of retirees. Lots of people live down there that retired. And so they went down there, and he started a church. And for two years, they were tied in a fairly nice area of, of Winter Haven. But as he was down there, God began to break his heart for the community, and, and especially the people of Eloise, this little community down there. And, and, and he told his wife and he told his in-laws, he said, God is telling me that I need to go to Eloise and start a church there. And they were going like, no, 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 you can't go to Eloise because Eloise is a horrible place. There's gang problems and there's murders every day and, and, there, and there's just crime. It's, it's just through the roof. You can't go there. It's not safe. But Juan did not listen very well. At least not to his family. He listened to God real well. And he went 22 years ago, and he planted this little church in this little community that you'll never go through if you go to Winter Haven, unless you intentionally go there. And for 22 years, he's ministered through this little church that's never been more than 100 people. And one drives a pickup truck that has ladders and all kind of stuff on it. It looks like more like a repairman than he does a pastor. Because one of his things, he and three other guys from his church go around in the community and they fix stuff in people's homes and open, it opens doors for them. And he said, I've had the privilege. And, and he's the same age I am. Old. And, and, he, and he, I've never seen a guy who is more alive for Christ. More enthusiastic about his service. He lives in a little house that you would call nothing much. He doesn't get much salary because nobody in his church has any money. And he drives an old pickup. But he has said, I've had the privilege of serving thousands of people who are migrant workers who come to that region all the time. I may see them for a m- two, three, four months and then they move on. But he understands one thing. The Jesus that he follows is not this Jesus of comfort and this Jesus of, of convenience, this Jesus that's, that's politically correct. It's the Jesus of Scripture that says, follow me, do every, throw everything at my feet, allow me to give your life meaning and purpose. And when I read Scripture, I read a history of people that were called to risk it all for God. People who have put their full allegiance into Jesus Christ. A Jesus who is not just there for their comfort and their convenience, but a Jesus who says, follow me, it's worth following me because it will change everything about your lives. A Jesus who is so countercultural that it totally defies what we normally pursue. 
And I can tell you this, this morning, it matters what Jesus you follow. Because if you follow this politically correct, civilized Jesus who you think is going to meet every need of yours, you will be disappointed a lot. But if you trust the God, the Jesus who calls on you to die to self, you will never be disappointed. Because he will give your life meaning and purpose beyond all the junk that we go through every day. And he will eliminate the fears that so often hinder us from being all that God wants us to be. So what's the question is this. What Jesus do you place your hope in? What Jesus do you place your hope in? I pray that it's the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus, the God who loves us so much that he wants us to die to ourselves so that we can really live. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.